According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs chapter 20. Proverbs chapter 20, we're looking at verses 10 and following. We've handled verse 10, verse 11. Uh, I think today we'll move on to verses 12 and 13. If we make it to verse 14, I'll be shocked. It's a good verse for haggling, for bargaining in the marketplace. Bad, bad, says the, the buyer. You know, you, you, you never think the price is fair enough, but when he goes away, then he boasts. So while he's there face to face with the seller, he's acting like, oh, this is a terrible price. Uh, but then as soon as he makes his purchase and walks away, now he's, he's happy with it. So anyway... It's, uh, it's a curious verse, and I don't think we'll quite get that far today, but uh, we'll see. Lord's in charge of that too. Father, we thank you. Let's open with a word of prayer and uh, dedicate our time for the study of His truth, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. We thank you for this church property. And for the freedom we have to uh, to open it up and to meet once again, as long as we stay a good distance from one another, I just thank you for the governor's guidelines and for all the procedures we're being careful to follow. Father, thank you also for watching over this place while we're not here on the days we're not around. Um, strange cars show up every now and then, and we're not sure why, but but you're in charge, Father. Your angels are here watching this place 24-7, and we just uh, thank you and praise you. So we uh, commit to you our time now and that you would open our eyes, uh, open our ears, soften our hearts, bless our time in your word, Father. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Real quick, before we get into this material, just a, a, an administrative announcement. Um, I uh, And it's unlike me to plan this far out, but um, thinking ahead to 2022. Is that bizarre? Um, but the reason why I'm, I'm bringing it up because it affects this class and it affects, it affects the Wednesday morning class. So I'd appreciate if you guys would pray uh, for it. But two weeks ago, I, I uh, got with my elders, asked them for prayer. Last week, I got with my deacons and asked them for prayer because I'm thinking about repeating the Through the Bible year that we did uh, back in 2002. So that was a long time ago, and most nobody here other than Shirley and uh, and, and Christopher were, were even here at that point of time. But we did a Through the Bible series in 2002 where we went through a Bible reading plan with grace notes and it's chronological, Genesis to Revelation, uh, January 1st to December 31st. And uh, to cover a year, or to cover 1189 chapters in one year is, uh, is, 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 is you've got to be faithful, you've got to be diligent, you've got to read about three chapters a day, about 28 chapters a week, you can't fall behind because the year just keeps going. And, and that. So while we were doing that, in the Bible through year of 2002, um, every Sunday I was giving a, a handout, some printed notes uh, on paper, a handout for the, the chapters you were going to read the following week. And then I was teaching from the pulpit from those exact chapters that the reading was going to cover in that, in that week. And so uh, we tried to stay current, tried to stay up with everything, and uh, taught five times a week, taught uh, twice Sunday morning, once Sunday night, um, Tuesday and Thursday night. We didn't have a single Wednesday night midweek, we had a Tuesday-Thursday midweek format. And so that, that ended up being five, five teaching classes every week, 250 by the time the series was over. And um, it was good, but it was not enough. Five times a week was just, it was too fast. We were just trying to cram things in. We couldn't cover everything. So I've been praying and asking my elders to pray, and I'll ask you guys to pray. Um, if, if, if five is not enough, can we do six a week? Can we do seven a week? I'm thinking about, you know, I used to do two Sunday morning, two Sunday night when we had the six o'clock hour and the 7.30 hour for, uh, for PMW, for ministry training, things like that. So if we did two Sunday morning, two Sunday night, that's four right there. And then if we did Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday as a midweek schedule, then that would make up the other three and we would have seven every single week. And we could do seven a week for 52 weeks. We could do, you know, 365 or thereabouts, ballpark, you know. 
Um, anyway, keep it in prayer. Um, if we do that, and I've got it in my mind, I'm, I'm kind of doing some preliminary prep work, and it'll take some serious prep work. Um, but if we do that, I kind of have in my mind that it wouldn't be this coming January for 2021. It would actually be the following January for 2022. And uh, not only does that give us more lead time to prepare for it, we've got to train a whole lot more desk engineers to run the cameras and run the desk. Um, you know, we're, if we're going to do 365 in a year, we're also going to need printing support we're gonna, for the notebooks and the, the study notes, things like that. So um, anyway, if it does happen, and kind of honestly right now I really want it to happen. I would love to teach 365 in a year. But that means we suspend Hebrews uh, or Genesis, we suspend uh, Colossians, probably be Philemon by then. We suspend Proverbs. I, I just can't imagine keeping this Wednesday morning class going if I'm already teaching seven other times a week. So um, anyway, so I'm sharing that with you guys this morning, and uh, you can talk about it with yourselves and with the other folks that aren't here, and uh, and just see if if we do uh, through the Bible year, then uh, Proverbs, the Wednesday morning class, would have to be suspended for uh, for that year. So keep that uh, before the Lord, and and hopefully we're in chapter 20 now, about halfway down. Maybe um, I don't know if I can get through chapter 24 in the next 17 months, in the next year and a half. Um, that would really be a good breaking point. Uh, get to the end of chapter 24 because there's a new heading that gets introduced in chapter 25 of Proverbs. So anyway, I'm just kind of trying to see how far can we get in Genesis, uh, that, that new series we're about to start. Um, will we be done? We should be done with Colossians by then. Um, you know, how far are we going to be in Proverbs? All these things in the, in running through my mind as I try to figure out, we're going to suspend all of that for, for a year. So we can do this uh, this through the Bible series. So anyway, um, yeah. I will. I will have paperwork handouts. In fact, we still have notebooks from 20 years ago that we have, and you can take. It's a 500-page notebook. Take one of those, uh, and and this is what gives me confidence too, is that. Um, is that I have the notes still from 20 years ago. I have the notes, I have outlines for every chapter in the Bible. What I need to do this time around is go through, edit them, improve them, expand upon them, uh, find the, the things where maybe I don't teach things like I used to back then. And, and just see where my theology has grown, where some of our understandings have improved, and, uh, and things like that. So, and then the real fun is not only comparing the before and after, Say, uh, say, I'm. I was 33 then. I'm going to be 53 the next time, and and then you know just kind of see the before and after, and oh, I used to teach that. Now I teach this, but then do it when I'm 73. Do it a third time. You know, 20 years after that. You know, and uh, and we'll see if uh, now, Jim. I don't know you're going to be here in 20 years after that, but we'll uh, <laughs> we'll see. Okay, Jim plans on joining us for that, so we'll see if. Uh, you know, wouldn't that be an amazing project? Through the Bible, through the Bible, through the Bible, three different generations, really, if, uh, if the Lord allows for that. So anyway, keep that before the Lord. Like I say, I'm excited about it. I've, I've uh, uh, been running it past uh, some different pastors, Pastor Cliff, Pastor Dan, Pastor Tim, they're all praying for it. And uh, we'll just see. It'll be kind of a, a fun project if... Uh, if the Lord allows for that. Lord willing and rapture pending, that's the other thing. I don't think we'll still be around by then because that trumpet can sound any minute now. And uh, as crazy as this world is getting, it uh, wouldn't shock me at all. All right, so Proverbs uh, chapter 20, picking up um, with, uh, yeah, different, uh, different weights, different measures. We dealt with that in verse 10. Uh, verse 11, it is by his deeds that a lad distinguishes himself. And uh, these issues here. So if I advance the slideshow, point nine was what we looked at in verse 10, with the differing weights, differing measures. Both of them are abominable to the Lord. We understand that free trade requires just weights and measures, as any cheating is an abomination. Free trade is essentially volitional. It is the voluntary exchange. It is a believer or it is a human being in the laws of divine establishment. It's somebody who is freely giving to somebody else who is freely giving in exchange. 
and the free giving, and the free giving is uh, an imitation of God. God so loved the world that He gave. And the free giving because you want to. Remember, God doesn't love the compulsion. The, you can't give. It's got to be voluntarily. It can't be grudgingly or under compulsion. God loves the cheerful giver. And so free trade, free exchange, these are the marvelous things that God has designed. And uh, when you when you put deception into that and you have uh, faulty scales or you have differing weights uh, that you use in different circumstances, uh, that's an abomination. And that's uh, something that God Himself wants nothing to do with. Okay? And I failed. I was going to give an illustration on this verse a couple weeks ago. And I was going to tell a, an army story from Desert Storm. And I'll tell it now. The um, uh, we were in Saudi Arabia in Desert Storm, and my first sergeant was um, purchasing kerosene from uh, an Arab, from a, a merchant on the economy, and uh, and he was taking it and in, in using it in his tent, and he was getting some for the captain. The captain was using it in his tent. They had some kerosene lamps, and uh, and the first and I, I was the first sergeant's driver, so I would take him over there. I knew where the place was, and we would go over there, and uh, we would pick up the kerosene, and we would come back. No big deal. But after a few weeks, I guess, of doing this, a couple months maybe, I don't remember, uh, but at a certain point the captain decided, he said, you know, Top, I, I don't feel that you should be paying for all this all the time out of your pocket. Why don't I go? And uh, so the first sergeant said, all right. And, and um, I had to tell the captain's driver how to find it and he drove him over there and he came back. And the captain was livid. He was, he was disappointed. He actually said, I can't believe you've been paying for this the whole time out of your pocket. And uh, you know, you, you know, I, we should have been splitting this at least, or you let me pay for it. And, and the first sergeant was surprised. He said, well, Captain, it's really not all that much. What are you talking about? And, and uh, well, how much did you pay? And this is where we get the different weights, different measures, see. And the captain told him, oh, I paid, you know, a certain amount for this quantity of kerosene fuel. And, and the first sergeant started laughing. He said, Captain, he said, I'm not paying that. You know, that's, that's, you know, three times the amount or whatever that, that he was paying. So uh, anyway, that's the different way it's different measures. And the, and the Arab, the Arab uh, merchant, you know, he had a normal price for the, for the grisly old first sergeant, you know. But then the young, clean-cut, you know, captain, officer type comes along and the rate was tripled. And the captain paid it. He didn't know any better. And so that's what we talk about with different weights, different measures. And so anyway... It was kind of funny, and we went back, and the first first sergeant went back and kind of had a word with that Arab and said, "Hey, that's not cool, you know." And and uh, we got the lower price forevermore after that. But anyway, that's uh, it's a curious story for me, and, and fun to tell those kind of stories. All right, and what's the point in serving in the military if you can't tell stories for the rest of your life? I mean, that's the whole point. Anyway, we dealt with that in verse ten, verse eleven. These lifelong reputations. It is by his deeds that a lad distinguishes himself if his conduct is pure and right. And foundational to adult life, of course, is your childhood and, and the blessings you have to train up a child in the way he should go, and the blessings to raise a child in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, to saturate them with truth from the youngest of ages. Because a lifelong reputation can be made, and in fact it should be made, in a childhood that is lived according to the Word of God. And so you build those patterns and you establish the reputation, the character, the, uh, the distinguishing of, him, of himself there in verse 11. And we showed the examples of Samuel and, uh, of course, our Lord Jesus in uh, Luke 2 and then Timothy in uh, 2 Timothy 3 and Acts 16. And, and this is the blessing that we have here. Moving on then to verse uh, 12, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made both of them. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made both of them. Now this is a curious verse at first because it just seems like you read it and you say, uh, okay, what's the point? <laughs> All right, we get it. Uh, but there's actually a very profound point that goes with this beyond just the surface concept of uh, the ear hears and the eye sees, because that's what it's designed to do. That uh, the ear doesn't see, the eye doesn't hear, 
It's the ear that hears, it's the eye that sees, and God, the God of order, the God of design, the God of wisdom, is the God that that created them both. And we're blessed with both of them. In fact, everything we're blessed with, we're blessed with God's created design. And so the more I prayed about it and thought about it and connected this verse to other passages of Scripture, the more I started to realize, you know, we live in a day and age in which this simple truth is rejected. This simple truth seems to be uh, too commonsensical for, uh, for this day and age. And in other words, common sense isn't as common as it used to be. And it just seems like, uh, and so here's the point as I wrote it, point 11 in the, in the chapter outline, functioning according to God's design, both physically and spiritually, is actually pretty simple. We should accept the wisdom of His design and function accordingly. We need to accept the wisdom of His design and function accordingly. And this is true physically. This is true spiritually. If, uh, if you are an ear, remember we're all body parts in the body of Christ, so whatever our body part is, that's what we need to be doing. That's what we need to be uh, functioning in within the overall body of Christ in a local church context and, and so forth. We, we, we understand that metaphor in the New Testament as it relates to the, to the body of Christ. Uh, not every member is a foot. Not every member is an eye. If we were all just a bunch of eyes, then we wouldn't hear anything. If we were all a bunch of ears, we wouldn't see anything. And so the, the, the metaphor of the body and the members of the body and how we all fit together according to the proper working of each individual part, that's huge. And so we read a, a, a simple proverb like this, the hearing ear, the seeing eye, the Lord has made both of them. We can relax in knowing that God knows what He's doing. And then we can also call upon Him if uh, you know, we get to be like Moses and we're fearful of speaking. Well, God encouraged Moses by saying, hey, who made your mouth? I made your mouth and I'm going to put words in it. And I'm going to be with you as you speak. And these are these are just basic principles that should be encouraging for all of us in, uh, in these ways. So physically and spiritually we need to function according to God's design. And it's really pretty simple. If, uh, you know, if you're a, an ear, don't try to see everything. That's not what you're designed to do. And, and if you're an ear that doesn't see very well, don't blame God. Don't think that something's broken or something's wrong. There's nothing broken, there's nothing wrong. The only thing wrong uh, is that you're an ear trying to be an eye. And that's not wrong necessarily, it's just a problem you seem to have. Because if you quit trying to see and started trying to hear, you'd figure out, hey, you know what? I'm a marvelous ear. This is what I'm designed to do. And uh, the ear that hears and the eye that sees. We also have passages that warn about you, you have eyes but you still don't see. So there's a problem there too is that while having ears you do not hear, while having eyes you do not see. In fact, God will use that as a divine discipline upon a rebellious people like Israel. He will use that as a, as a divine discipline because you may have physical ears, but you're not using your spiritual ears, so you're oblivious to the Word of God and His message. You might have physical eyes, but you're not using your spiritual eyes. So everything you see, you should be looking at this world with divine viewpoint, and instead you're looking at this world and the situation our country's going through right now, and you're looking at it with human viewpoint. Well, why are you doing that? That's no better than what an unbeliever does. Quit doing that. Look at things with divine viewpoint. Look at things with your spiritual eyes. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's still depressing, but at least you'll have divine viewpoint to give you the comfort and the hope and the encouragement that God's got a plan, He knows what He's doing. And even, uh, even the dark days that a nation goes through still work together for good for those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. So let me get the Bible up and running here and we'll uh, take a look at these verses and see. I learned on Sunday what caused my haunted Bible, so I'll avoid doing that again. That was the craziest thing, first hour of Sunday morning. All right, so we start with uh, Proverbs 20 and verse 12. Accept the wisdom of His design and function accordingly. He designed the ear to be the hearing thing and the eye to be the seeing thing. And so the Lord has made both of them. It's God's wisdom. It's God's sovereignty. If, uh, you know, you don't have to like it, I guess, but why don't you like it? 
It's, uh, it's what he designed, and if he designed it in his wisdom and in his plan, then it's, it's good. Behold, it's very good. And uh, we can appreciate that. All right, along with this, I mentioned Moses a little bit ago. Exodus 4.11 is the context here. Who has made man's mouth? And it's more than that, but we back up a little bit. Exodus chapter 4, and here's the uh, signs that he's giving Moses to perform. And then, um, how much of this do we need to read? All right, chapter 4, Moses said, well, what if they don't believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. You know, you just show up on the scene and say, I'm here from God and here's his message. Um, It's not an illegitimate complaint, although I think Moses was a bit whiny in this. Um, God's messengers are usually provided with signs, prophets, apostles, those that especially if they're going to be writing down scripture in in the canon, the messengers of God, the reason for the miracles, the reason for the signs is to provide the credentials that, that validate their divine authenticity, that validate that they're from heaven, that they are delivering a heavenly message. And so, uh, well, what if they don't believe me? And the Lord said, well, what's that in your hand? He said, a staff. So he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. Okay. So God gives a sign for you to perform. Why are you afraid of the sign God just gave you? That's yours to perform. It's also curious to me when the Lord says, what is that in your hand? You know, he asks questions not because he's ignorant, not because he, you know, is clueless or doesn't know. God knows what's in his hand. He can see it plainly. He's omniscient. He knows that it's there. But he's asking the question so that he elicits the response so that the the human being involved learns through this process. It's just a staff. No, I think it's a snake. Throw it down. And uh, sure enough. So the Lord says to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. He stretched out his hand, caught it, and the staff, it became a staff in his hand. So here's a real miracle. Curious to me how Pharaoh's guys do it. They replicate this in, a, in an interesting way. Anyway, then they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to you. The Lord furthermore said to him, now I'll give you another one. So you think one would be sufficient? Oh, no, no. See, everything's got to be validated. Two or three witnesses. You can't just have a single sign. Let me give you two signs. Put your hand into your bosom. Put his hand into his bosom. When he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, put your hand into your bosom again. He put it back in again. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. I mean, imagine. What a miracle. And it's not just an illusion or an optical trick or some kind of a visual thing. His hand was literally leprous. And, and advanced stages of leprosy. I mean, uh, just to be white like snow and then to put it back and be completely healed, it's uh, pretty tremendous. So there you go. If they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. And it's curious, the language of first and last, and there's, I think there's some theology here. But if they, <laughs> you think? All right. But if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on dry ground, and the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So this then becomes a third sign, but it becomes a disciplinary sign for them having rejected the first two. So Moses says, please Lord, I have never been eloquent, nor neither recently nor in times past. You know, he's, he's he might be a little rusty. He's been out of public view for, for 40 years, right? He fled from Pharaoh and he's been 40 years in the, in the wilderness raising uh, his father-in-law's sheep. And, uh, you know, maybe in his glory days when he grew up in Pharaoh's house, but he's even denying that. I've never, never been eloquent, neither recently nor in times past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Or who has made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And this verse, I think it it not only does it match well with what we see in, in Proverbs 20, but it even goes beyond that to show God as the creator and designer of all of our body parts. But he also has sovereign control over whether they function properly or don't function properly, how he can mitigate the effects of the fall. I mean, there's no question we're fallen bodies in a fallen world, and so we have birth defects, we have injuries, we have other things by which, uh, you know, you, you, you top 50 years old and you start wearing hearing aids, things like that. 
um, or you have poor vision, you've got to wear glasses, things like that. Uh, so mute and deaf, uh, seeing or blind, God's in charge of all of that. And every testing, every limitation that we encounter in the physical realms, if, if, we, if we're diabetic, if we have other health issues, other things, God sovereignly mitigates all of that. He can, he's in total control. And His grace is sufficient. Is it not I, the Lord? Now then, go. You know, for a guy who claims to be mute, he's sure talking a lot. Okay? He, he says, I've never been eloquent, but it's not slowing him down from all these complaints he keeps coming up with. Now then, go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. And teach you so he says, please, Lord, now send my message by whomever you will. And that was uh, too much, and he provoked God's anger. All right, let's look at Deuteronomy 22. <clears throat> We're going to go beyond the scope of Proverbs. We're going to see a lot of concepts here. The uh, design of male and female, how about that? We've got a Genesis series coming up, and as we teach it, God made man in His image. In the image of God, He made him. Male and female, He created them. And the male and female roles are different. They are functionally different. They are designed differently. The, the, the female is designed to complete the male. It's not good for the man to be alone. And so the complementary way that the, the two, count them, two, sexes are in God's design uh, are, are to be distinct. So a woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. And recognize this is more than just a fashion statement. This is a con- concept that says let's keep our sexes distinct. We want our men to be manly. We want our women to be we have masculinity and femininity. We have gender roles that are that are designed by God. And when those get blended, when those get confused, when those get flipped upside down, what happens? Well, it's like an ear trying to see something or a, an eye trying to hear something. And then uh, what's worse than that is uh, then the perversions that come in with cross-dressing and uh, all the other uh, philias and paraphilias and, 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 and perversions that come in with confused human sexuality. Everything we're told today we're supposed to celebrate and the Bible says no that's not a celebration, that's an abomination. And that's, a, that's contrary to God's design. Alright, now also by the way, so you can obey this principle in a lot of different ways. And you can violate this principle in a lot of different ways. And so um, because what is considered masculine and what is considered feminine and styles and different things, so uh, you can't just lock in on a hard and fast rule because uh, things could be different in Texas from how they are in Africa, how they are in the Philippines, how they are wherever. Um, And even from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. And, and when you're talking about a plan of God that spans thousands and thousands of years, you know, you can, and so the best way to illustrate is to keep it biblical, but you can find um, uh, earrings and nose rings in the Old Testament. You can find earrings and nose rings when they came out of Egypt, when they plundered the Egyptians, and you can find men and women wearing the earrings and the nose rings, biblically speaking, in the the culture of the ancient Near East. We're talking 2nd millennium BC, Egyptians, Canaanites, Hebrews, and, uh, and so forth. And, and so including nose rings, alright. <laughs> so when your daughter asks dad, when your daughter asks her pastor father, we have discussions pertaining to what is appropriate and not appropriate. okay, And also with respect to modesty. That's a whole different conversation. And with respect to uh, masculinity, femininity, what is it that we are communicating? How are we glorifying God in everything that we say and do? Aspects there. So anyway, um, male clothing, female clothing. Okay? What is, what, what is the message you're conveying and why are you wearing 
um, a particular shirt. And I don't care. I mean, again, grace is grace, and we're not under law anyway. We're in the age of grace and whatnot. So if, uh, if, uh, if, if my wife wears her husband's shirt or her dad's shirt or something, you know, she's not defying the gender roles. She's not, um, you know, cross-dressing and perverted in her, in her uh, uh, sexuality. All right. Probably enough on that. We'll talk about tattoos some other day <laughs> and, uh, and other things there. Um, how about Matthew 13? How about Matthew 13, verse 13? All right, therefore I speak to them in parables. What's the therefore? Well, the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. The discipline that rebellious Israel is under, particularly the arrogant, the legalistic Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders that have already rejected him. They haven't succeeded in crucifying yet, but they've already rejected him. The, the tremendous hinge that happens partway through the life of Christ ministry where he, they accuse him of, of, of Beelzebub, of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. They reject him as being the Christ. He stops teaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's a very clear hinge where he never uses that at-hand language again. And when he starts to prepare his disciples for the cross. And then Matthew 13 follows that hinge. You can track it there in, in Matthew chapter 10 through 12, in that stage of, of our Savior's ministry. Anyway, so he starts to prepare them in terms of parables. The kingdom of heaven is like. And he starts to teach them in terms of parables. And the disciples ask, well, why is this? To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. This is by God's design. And you can go get this on the Life of Christ series sitting there on the website, get, get the notebook, read through the notes, listen to the MP3s. But you understand this verse is usually um, lamented. The carnal mind will throw up his hands and he'll hate. He'll say, oh yeah, the rich get richer, the poor get poor. Well, that's how you phrase it in your um, hostile uh, expression that uh, is uh, adversarial and confrontational and, and uh, dissatisfied with the American way of life and different aspects. Um, you you, you want to bring about this communist utopia where we're all just equal and happy and, and uh, you know, let's think again here. But what he's saying is to whoever has more shall be given if you have a hungry appetite for the Word of God. He's going to provide for that, and you're going to have more. In fact, the church age has more than Israel ever dreamed of. But he who does not have, in other words, you don't have a hunger for the Word of God. In fact, you've, you're twisting some passages because you're such an arrogant legalist, and you're denying that Jesus is the Christ. Even what you do have is taken away. So the great understanding, there were men of scholarship, they had tremendous... Jesus told Nicodemus, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. So even what he does have will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables because while seeing they do not see. They have physical eyes, they have human viewpoint, but they've been carnal for so long they haven't looked at anything with spiritual eyes in ages. So while seeing they do not see, while hearing they do not hear. And because the only thing they can do if they were here this morning, they'd be sitting in Bible class, but they'd be out of fellowship. They wouldn't, they wouldn't apprehend the spiritual truth from the Word of God. Plus, they don't speak English. If they were sitting here this morning, they would struggle. All right. Nor do they understand. Nor do they understand. Because that requires processing, that requires divine viewpoint, that requires comparing Scripture with Scripture, and... Uh, and these things here. So we see that it's a consequence of discipline. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. 
which says, you will keep on hearing but will not understand, you will keep on seeing but will not perceive, for the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. And this hardness of heart, it's generational. And in fact, this generation that crucifies the Christ produces the next generation, and they said, uh, His blood be upon us and upon our children. And it wasn't but 40 years later that the destruction hit when Titus destroyed Jerusalem and the, the Jewish people were destroyed and dispersed from, uh, from their land of blessing. So we want to function according to God's design. Physically, spiritually, we want to stay positive to doctrine. We want to stay humble in His plan. Uh, we don't want to come under the, the discipline whereby He... Um, diminishes our capacity to hear, diminishes our capacity to see. Because uh, remember, if you have, you'll have more. If you don't have, even what you do have is taken away. Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Yet a whole string of prophets from Samuel to Malachi and they all kept saying the Christ is coming, the Christ is coming, the Christ is coming. And then you get John the Baptist who said, he's here. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then the disciples who get to walk with him for three and a half years or more, who get to walk with him, in fact I'm looking at a chronology now that may cause me to adjust, may have to tweak a little bit of what I did with Life of Christ all those years ago. Anyway, um, They got to walk with him for whatever length of time, three and a half, four and a half, five and a half years, seven years, I guess at the most. And uh, and they got to they got to learn the word of God from the word of God, <laughs> you know, the living word of God, communicating the spoken word of God. What a blessing. And it's all by God's grace that those disciples got to hear those things. Matthew 19, verses four through six. And so this usually gets people's attention because it's the divorce chapter. And the, uh, they tried to trap him into picking sides. Large crowds were following him. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And there were really two schools of thought in rabbinic Judaism of that day probably not technically right to call it rabbinic yet, but I, I do. Anyway, first century Judaism had two schools of thought. The school of Hillel, the school of Shammai. One was more conservative, one was more liberal, more permissive. I think our mystery uh, car is departing. Alright. And so um, what was I talking about? Oh, Hillel and Shammai. Two liberal schools. And one was very conservative, very strict on the Mosaic procedures regarding divorce, and one was very liberal. In fact, you could divorce for any reason at all, you know, if she burned a meal, you know, anything that made you unhappy, and just write her the note, send her off, and there she goes, okay? And, uh, and so by phrasing the question this way, any reason at all, they're trying to get, uh, the conservative group is trying to get Jesus to react against the liberal group, to side with them, but it really doesn't matter. Whichever side he picks, they're going to, you know, half of them are going to jump on him and they, they're going to have some kind of a, a wedge issue. But he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So what does he do? He goes back to Genesis. He goes back and he cites the original design. And that what we need to be doing is functioning according to God's design. And so accept it. Accept the wisdom of it and walk in what He has designed and be blessed. From the beginning He made the male and female. And He said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so this is the design. Male and female. And that in the male and female operation produces children. And then the children have the blessing that they will 
grow up, they will leave their parents' home, they will assume their own generational accountability, whereby they no longer fall under the spiritual headship of their, uh, those that have raised them. And when they, uh, when they step out in that way, it is one man and one woman. It's not a man and another man, it's not two women, it's not polygamy, it's not all these other things. Okay? Leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the generational accountability and the recognition that marriage precedes family, that, that uh, the identification as man and wife precedes the copulation as man and woman in uh, these things. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And this is really the, the issue with divorce, the sin of divorce, what God hates in divorce, is that God has actually put two together into one, one soul. Two into one. And then man destroys that in the divorce proceedings and, and uh, the issue there. He says, let no man separate. That's a command. Alright, uh, 1 Corinthians 6.13. Food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food. Oh, okay. I like that. <laughs> food is for the stomach and stomach is for food. And so again, it's God's design, you know. And <laughs> God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. And this is that gets into some other issues as well. Why has God designed us the way that He has? Why has God provided uh, man and woman in marriage? Why has God provided family life the way that He has? He's providing the appropriate boundaries so that we don't ruin ourselves through the abuse, the misuse, the perversion of what God has designed. If you stay within God's parameters, you experience God's blessings. If you depart from God's parameters, well, anticipate like using the body for immorality, that's not why He designed the body. He designed the body for blessing. He designed the body for the glory of Jesus Christ. He designed the body to bring honor and pleasure to God. And so we've been bought with a price, we should glorify God with our bodies. That's what this chapter gets to. And uh, He didn't die on the cross so that you can, uh, you know, be a fornicator. You can be a fornicator as an unbeliever. Uh, that's not why He saved you. That's not why He died on the cross. The Corinthians really had a lot of issues here. And in fact, um, they, um, there was a group within them that, uh, do you not know your bodies are members of Christ? Shall, you, shall I then take away members of Christ to make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. You know, there was a, there was a segment within the population who felt that, hey, uh, our sins are washed away, we're forgiven, we're, you know, so we can do whatever we want now. In an antinomian, lawless perversion of grace that says uh, it's all paid for, so man, go live it up, have fun, do whatever. And they're hosting these parties, and um, including heteri and other, um, which are basically just sexual entertainment. And, uh, and, and what are you doing? That's not Christian, that's not biblical, that's not why He saved you? Shall we take away the members of Christ, make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Do you not know that one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. See this is not just marriage, this is one night stands. This is a single chance encounters with a, with a prostitute. The two shall become one flesh. So what happens if you're one flesh with, with 50 different people? For the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Hey, how about that? One spirit. See, now we start to see that there's a spiritual component as well as a physical component and um, aspects there. You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Yeah, that message in 1 Corinthians 6 is pretty clear. All right, 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 9. Do you remember the sake? We talked about sakes. Satan likes to pervert sakes. If something is for somebody's sake, then he flips it upside down and he makes it for somebody else's sake. And, and, and he loves it if he can turn it backwards. You know, the role of parents for children. And then uh, 
if Satan can flip that upside down and, and make it backwards, so if instead of uh, uh, parents raising the children, the children are raising the parents, or the ch- who's, who, who are calling the shots? Who has the authority in a situation? Man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. So this gives us the priority and the, this gives us the, of course it's, it's sequentially the order that it was done in, but it's also purpose in that the man alone was not good. The woman was designed for the man to, to remedy the man's not good aloneness. And so that together, man and woman, because male and female he created them, together man and woman can be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Man by himself is not going to be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth or subdue it. And we'll, we'll deal with that. I'm, I am looking forward to Genesis coming up and that's going to be a blessing for us. Same chapter, woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of angels. Now this too goes back to first century practice and customs, things that we have to adapt for 20th and 21st century issues. Um, it's not about having a bonnet on your head, although there's Amish and Mennonites and other groups of, of Christians to this day that still have uh, you know, little headpieces for the, for the women in church, different aspects there. And I don't criticize, I don't mock that, I don't knock that. Um, I, I understand this is the passage that they're convicted by. Um, but I think the symbol of authority the concept of authority, the clearly defined gender roles, uh, they are what they are. And so uh, we don't legalistically demand that our, that our women have the, the, the bonnet on their head. But we do expect that our husbands are going to be leaders in their home and that they're going to be uh, male in their operation and masculine in their, in their faith. And that the women are going to be uh, submissive in their marriages, in their, in their church, that they're going to have the attitude, they're going to express, am I making sense? That they're going to express, I'm taking about 11 hours of teaching from 1 Corinthians and trying to pack it into five minutes here. Um, so you don't have to wear the bonnet so long as you're functioning in your gender role, is the design. All right. However, and it's because of the angels, that's curious. Because we are under angelic observation that the church is to portray the manifold wisdom of God that we are the exhibits of, of grace and glory to the angelic realm. And so uh, because of the angels, because they are watching, and if we have any kind of uh, confusion, if we have any kind of rebellion, if there's any kind of an attitude present at Austin Bible Church where uh, you have malcontent among the women that are seething, uh, waiting to rebel, waiting to overthrow the, the authority of the church, uh, Satan's going to see that. The fallen angels are going to see that. Why do you think the serpent went to Eve first to get to Adam? Okay, If there is any kind of wedge there, they can make use of that. So it says, because of the angels. However, in the Lord neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. They are interdependent. They, are, um, they, they coordinate. They are both necessary. They are complementary. There's a whole among evangelical churches there's a term called complementarianism which started off real good in 1992 and has kind of gone in a bad direction lately. Anyway, as man originates, as woman originates from the man so also man has his birth through the woman. All things originate from God. So judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? So he says, judge for yourselves. This is an issue whereby in liberty and in love we have to evaluate on a circumstance-by-circumstance basis. And our culture today in in Austin, Texas is going to be uh, significantly different from first century culture in uh, Corinth, at least as far as we're concerned. The the pagans might be pretty similar. (laughs) All right, But um, yeah. Anyway, does not nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair it's a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair it is a glory for her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. And so that right there, given to her for a covering, that right there can function in lieu of a bonnet or a a veil or or another such thing if in fact she is feminine and attractive and and, and operating in in that mode. Okay, 
dressing like a girl. (laughs) But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice nor have the churches of God. And this is what happens when you start to confuse things, when you start to rebel, when you decide, I don't want to operate the way God designed it to operate. Well, then that contentiousness, that's not uh, how we function in, in our Bible church. This is not how we function, biblically speaking, in, uh, in these things. All right, so that's uh, 1 Corinthians 11. And there we have it. All right, so that's Proverbs 20 and verse 12. The hearing eye and the seeing, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made both of them. Verse 13, do not love sleep or you will become poor. Open your eyes and you will be satisfied with food. All right, sleep is necessary, but not to be loved. Sleep is necessary, but not to be loved. You know, you appreciate what God's provided, you make use of what God's provided. Don't make an idol out of it. Don't abuse it. Too much sleep is not uh, intended. And if you're using sleep as an escape mechanism, (laughs) what's the real issue there? Sleep is necessary but not to be loved as wakeful work satisfies. If you sleep 24 hours a day, when are you going to get any work done? Wakeful work satisfies. The whole principle of spiritual wakefulness is particularly vital. So we're going to kind of we're going to look at physical wakefulness, spiritual wakefulness. We'll look at passages that encompass both. We're going to see the uh, the sluggard, of course. All he wants to do is just sleep, um, you know, because uh, they view sleeping as preferable to working. Uh, working is inconvenient. <laughs> working is hard. Okay, and uh, and yet this too is a part of God's design. You know, Adam and Eve were eating; they were sleeping. These things before the fall. Don't think that the, the, the need for food or the need for sleep is, uh, is a consequence of sin. The, the, the eating mechanism was already in place. In fact, that's how they sinned, was with the eating mechanism. The eating mechanism was already there. Adam and Eve were already uh, eating creatures. And there's a word for that. A, 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 a creature that eats. Because you got carnivores, you got herbivores, you got omnivores, but just the, the act of eating itself, okay, as opposed to plants. Plants don't eat, they absorb through, you know, photosynthesis and other than Venus flytraps, they eat. But um, there's a term, I think it starts with P-H-A-G, phaga, um, I'm going to look that up. A, a word for something that eats. Adam and Eve were, were eaters, before they were sinners. And that's how they became sinners, because they ate what they weren't supposed to eat. And so the design of eating, the design of sleeping, the design of, of uh, and, you know, Jesus ate in His resurrection body. That's encouraging, because we're going to be like Him. The resurrection body will be able to eat and uh, won't have to worry about gluttony or drunkenness or obesity or any of that, because we'll be perfect, glorified bodies. So sleep is necessary, but not to be loved. And I think the real issue there is loving sleep. And we've seen this before back in chapter 6. Remember that little song they wrote? A little folding of the hands to rest. I will lower this down when we get to the bottom part of the slide. For now, I'll just leave it there. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? You know, if you hit that snooze alarm 17 consecutive times, isn't that a bit much? You know, I mean, really, shouldn't you have just gone ahead and set your alarm for two hours later anyway to start with? What are you doing with all of these snooze alarms? And I I get it maybe once, maybe twice, I don't know. I don't, uh, that's just my personal quirk is that um, I set the alarm for the time I need to be up. So when it goes off, that's it. That's the time I need to get up. And I schedule it like that for a reason. The alarm goes off, I get up. But, you know, men and women are different. Husbands and wives are different. The variety is where spice comes from. And, and different people do different things. So if you hit it once or twice, it's not unreasonable. 
three times, four times, really? What are we doing? How long are you going to sleep? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, and here's the song, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. So, uh, you know, the, the vagabond might just ask you, and if you have pity, you throw him some money. The armed man isn't asking, he's taking what he wants. And uh, this is the progression in your laziness, the destitution you're putting yourself into. We'll come back to this in Proverbs 24, verses 30 through 34. I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. Behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I reflected on it, and I looked, and I received instruction. This is the guy that wrote that song all those years ago, and he's still singing it. He sings it every night. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in as a robber, or it actually has come as a robber, and your want like an armed man. So it's gotten worse. Now, we say this, and yet somebody might say, well, what about Psalm 127? Glad you asked. So see this as a contrast. Psalm 127 is also written by Solomon. Same guy that wrote Proverbs, wrote Psalm 127. It is a a song of ascents, a song of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. And so if you're trying to do something apart from the will of God, then you're not a co-worker with God. You're just doing your own thing. You're doing, you're following your own, I gotta be me, and I did it my way, and all these other, yeah, all these other Frank Sinatra songs, or whoever sings those, okay? And um, if the Lord's not doing it, what are you doing? Okay? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. If the Lord's not doing it. And then connecting to that, it is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. So now I I put that verse in your notes as a contrast and as an additional consideration And I think it should go along with Proverbs 20 and Proverbs 6 and Proverbs 24 and these other contexts, all right? We put them together so that we can avoid extremes in both directions so that uh, we realize that, you know, the the total workaholic working 20 hours a day and sleeping three or four hours a night, that's no good either. And uh, so that's the opposite of the sluggard. Both have issues that have to be resolved. They both need to be reconciled to the plan of God so that they are observant of what God is doing and what God is not doing. So the emptiness of rising up early to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors. If, if you're trying to, now we get there's circumstances in short term and whatnot, but if you're trying to use human effort to overcome something and you're not faith resting in the plan of God, then you need to stop and, and, and reevaluate what you're doing. Okay? Start with faith resting and then ask, ask him, Lord, should I pick up a few overtime shifts? Should I, should I add a second part-time job for a season? Do I need a moonlight for a short time or what have you? Um, but make sure that it's prayerfully done first and in, in accordance with the will of God that um, you're building the house with him, you're watching the city with him, all these things from verse 1, you don't separate from verse 2. Otherwise, you're just, you're not appreciating the, the sleep that he's providing you. He gives even in sleep. So you, you, uh, you, you go to, to bed, you offer your nighttime prayers, you thank him for this day, and you ask him to provide even in your sleep. That while you're sleeping, you're in the will of God. That he's going to provide rest, he's going to provide healing, he's going to provide uh, the, the, the refreshment and the, uh, the, the provision for when you wake up, the new day, you're ready to go. He provides even in his sleep. All right, so use that as a uh, corollary to chapter 20. I am at the end of our time, so we'll have to come back next week. I want to finish the rest of this slide. Wakeful work satisfies. You can't sleep your way through life. 
wakeful work satisfies, and then beyond that, spiritual wakefulness. And maybe I should have divided this out in subpoints A and B, I don't know, but the, the final issue to deal with here, spiritual wakefulness is particularly vital. We have the temporal wakefulness, of course, secular life, uh, living under the laws of divine establishment, but also keep in mind the spiritual wakefulness that we have and uh, the warnings that are given there. So we'll deal with that next week as well. And then we'll get to the bargaining verse. We'll learn how to haggle in the marketplace. Bad, bad, says the buyer. Whatever price they quote you, it's not, it's, it's not a bad, it's not a good price. You should be disappointed at the first number they give you. Oh, and uh, always, always be disappointed with the first number they give you. And uh, it's biblical. Thank you, Father, for this day, for your truth, for your faithfulness. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.